Yes, Lord, we just pray tonight. We pray that as we engage with your word, that we'd see ourselves in it. We know that your word is is a mirror unto our own lives, a mirror unto our, our own hearts. And God, we pray that you would reveal ourselves to us. We need your revelation to even understand ourselves. God, we pray that tonight as we see this dark story, that in it we'll find a principle, in it we'll find a reality of who you are and what you offer to humanity, something that we cannot find anywhere else, something that we often strive to do in our own power and in our own ways, and we find all kinds of ways to deal with, but the truth is nothing can cleanse us except you. There is no power on earth to cleanse our souls, to cleanse the reality of sin from them except you. So as we read this story tonight, would you be present for us to hear who you are and who we are. Help us to look to you for the needs that we have. We examine a need we may not even know we've had before. Would you make it apparent to us what we need from you, Jesus? And would we seek it out tonight and in the coming days and for the rest of our lives? Your cleansing power. Give me the words to speak tonight, Jesus, that we could understand the reality of defilement and what it means and what it means to be cleansed by your blood, Jesus. Holy Spirit, would you do the work of cleansing in each one of us tonight? Thank you for washing us as if with water to clean our not just the topical part of our skin, like when we take a bath or a shower, but the deep parts of the human soul. Lord, you reach into the deepest, darkest crevice, and even there you sweep them out. You fill them and flood them. You purge them and test them. You wash them with pure water. Thank you for filling us with your spirit. For those of us as Christians tonight who have your spirit, we know it's your spirit at work doing the cleansing work in our hearts. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, as I've said kind of several times, uh, and I think I said last week too, um, this is a, a hard sermon. And it's a hard passage. And when you get into hard passages, you know, even as a preacher, it's, uh, it's not fun to have to walk through the darkness of humanity. Uh, but it's necessary. It's necessary, one, because we can see ourselves in it. And, and we learn, hopefully, to be humble enough to see ourselves in it. Uh, and at the same time, the same time you see in the monstrous 
darkness of humans that God can still be at work. He can still be doing something. He can still be moving. He can still be forwarding his plan. And tonight, like I've said, is, is one of those topics. You know, typically this passage is referred to as the rape of Dinah. That's the way, uh, you know, it's, it's talked about in most Bibles and from most scholars. Uh, tonight, my sermon is close to that. It's, it's a slight change. I've changed the title a little um, for this sermon. And what I've called tonight is the defiling of Dinah. And there's a reason for that. There's, there's several angles I've thought through about how to, how to um, address this topic and what I wanted to say about tonight. And I think the best lens to understand it, the best lens from which to look at Genesis 34 is the lens of defilement. And the word actually, it does show up in the passage, so it's not like I've just imported it totally. Uh, but you'll see, I think, by, by the time I've explained defilement as a concept, what it has to do with this passage. And I think particularly, uh, this is, I'm not going to say defilement doesn't apply to everyone. It does. Everyone can understand the concept of defilement. But I think in a unique way, women understand this intuitively more than men do. Um, by nature of their existence, <laughs> by the nature of, of at, at many times being powerless against an oppressor. <laughs> um, and and it's, it's a deep reality, and unfortunately, I think it's a missed reality in this day and age, and particularly in Western cultures. Western cultures tend not to understand defilement and cleansing in a way that really understands the heart of what's going on. So I'm going to try to look at it through that lens and explain that to you as we go through this passage. Um, and I hope at the end of it, uh, you'll be encouraged. You'll be encouraged that some of the deepest, darkest things we can experience as human, uh, as a human, are not insurmountable. That the Lord can actually work on them. And that's powerful. So... Uh, we start in chapter 33. We've got three verses left there. Let's start there. Uh, we're starting in verse 18 of chapter 33. So remember what happened last time. Jacob and Esau had this great reconciliation. They were brought back together. And it was a really, like I've said, one of the most powerful moments, I think, in Scripture. of The, the reconciliation between brothers. Uh, and the power of God in that. And of course, you know, what I said we missed is that Jacob is trying to return the blessing. And how significant that is to show the change of heart Jacob has had, that he's really become the man Israel. He's no longer the deceiver. He's the one who struggles with God and men and prevails. So here we are. Jacob comes back into the land. Verse 18. Now Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Paddan Aram and camped before the city. He bought the piece of land where he had pitched his tent from the hand of the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. There he erected an altar and he called it El Elohe Israel. Yisrael, right? the God, the God of Israel. That's what he called the altar, God, the God of Israel. 
So uh, right there, you can see Jacob is already starting to do some of the things that remind you, okay, God's fulfilling the promise. Jacob is in the land again, right? He's in the land of Canaan. He's not distant from it. He's not far from it. He's not still coming into it. He's actually entered the land of Canaan because he's in Shechem. Now he's not to where he said he was going to go back. Remember where, where he made the promise to God. He said, if you see me back here to my father's house, the place he was going back to is called Bethel. And we'll see that next week when we look about going back to Bethel. But here, he's not all the way back to where God, you know, God has finished fulfilling this promise of bringing him back to Bethel. Here he's in Shechem. So he's in the land, but he's not completed where he's going. So here he is, he, he buys a piece of land, which again is very significant for the land promise, right? Jacob now owns a piece of the promised land. He's got all these kids. And of course, one of the questions is, if we think about those two aspects as we have throughout the entire Genesis series, okay, we've seen some land. Jacob owns some land. We know he's got some kids. He's got 12, well, 12 of them right now. Dinah's a big part of the story. He's got 12 kids that we know right now. And... What's left? A land, a seed, a blessing. Is Jacob going to be a blessing to these people around him? That's significant as we approach this story. It's significant when we're going to see the response of Simeon and Levi to what happens in this story. What should be in our heads, okay, we know Jacob's got land, we know he's got descendants, is he going to be a blessing? That should hang over this passage. Jacob's going to bring it up. He'll bring it up at the end of the passage. Okay, chapter 34. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to visit the daughters of the land. When Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he took her and he lay with her, this says by force. And actually, the word there in Hebrew is he lay with her and he humbled her. He afflicted her. He ravished her. He raped her. Now, the Bible often uh, has these heinous scenes, grotesque scenes, and they're, they're told pretty straightforwardly, matter-of-factly. This in, in only so many words, the, the horror of rape is not, uh, is, not, is not given a full picture, right? This is not fully fleshed out about how ho- horrific this scenario is, because in just a few words, it's, it's said, it's laid out there. But um, I imagine we all have some context as adults about the intensity of this experience, about, uh, I'm not saying we've all experienced it, but the intensity of the, the reality of rape is so heavy. It's so dark. And it's just kind of laid out there in this chapter. Now what's important to to recognize here, and I I think it is really key to understanding this narrative, is that we have to see some distance between our culture and theirs here. Because what's going to go on in this chapter at times seems baffling and at times seems callous to us. But we have to see the distance in the culture to really appreciate, to understand what's going on and understand to some extent the the powerlessness of the situation that everyone's in. Because it's not what we have. It's not 
2021 America, where there might be some other methods, there might be some other realities we can tap into in which to deal with this situation. One of the big ones is, of course, that we have no state, or they had no state force like we do. You can't call the police and fix this in ancient Israel, in ancient Canaan. It is solely based on the power of the two opposing uh, people groups, really. If you are the weaker party, what power do you have to redress wrongs? Well, primarily you have your gods that you pray to, that you, you know, that they are your protector, your shield, like God so often says to Abraham and Jacob. But you don't have some outside force. You can't go call Babylon and say, hey, Babylon, we need you to come fix this dispute we had. It just doesn't exist. All you have is what you're going to do, how you're going to respond. So that plays a key role in what's going to happen here. All that can happen is what Jacob or his sons or or the Shechemites are going to do. That's that's it. There's no outside forces to call upon. So we're going to be introduced to the parties in this scenario. We've seen Dinah. Dinah goes out into the land. And of course, this man, Shechem, he's of the land. He's a Canaanite. He's a Hivite. And he's the prince of the land. His father uh, is the tribal lord. He's He's functionally, you know, he has a lot of sway, a lot of power in this area because it's his tribe's land. And he's the prince of the land. And he goes out and, of course, he rapes Dinah. What other parties do we have? This is interesting. Before we're introduced to the rest of the cast of this story, it kind of leaves these little notes about Shechem. And what his response to this situation is. Okay, he he has raped her. He's violated her. He's ravished her. And it says this in verse 3. He was deeply attracted to Dinah. And actually, that's I don't even think that's the best translation. It says he was deeply attached, connected to her, the daughter of Jacob. And he loved the girl. And he spoke tenderly or reassuringly to her. And Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, get me this young girl for a wife. This is odd. (laughs) In fact, it's the exact opposite of the other major rape story we read about in the Old Testament, which is Amnon and Tamar, right? The children of David. In which Amnon, he is filled with lust for Tamar, And he rapes her as well. And what happens in response? It says he hated her. He despised her. He raped her and then hated who she was. And this is the exact opposite mirror of that. He raped her and he loved her. This is a side note, but I I bring it up because I don't like... I don't like little platitudes or little cliches we have in in Christian circles that that we... you know, kind of fall back on because it sounds nice. And this this passage right here actually destroys one of them, which is um, you've heard uh, the different types of loves. Of course, popularized by C.S. Lewis and the four loves, right? 
You have eros, the Greek words for love. You have eros and phileo and agape. And agape is the great love, right? Agape is God love, sacrificial love, the love that puts others before yourself. That's agape love. And we say whenever the New Testament uses agape, that's God love. That's loving like Christ. Well, the Septuagint, which is the translation of the Old Testament into Greek, in this passage, Shechem rapes Dinah and he agapes her. This is not sacrificial love. The terms are more complex than that. They can be used in different ways in different scenarios. Right? We have simple linguistic things that sound nice to us, so we use them. That's not the case. Clearly, this is not sacrificial God love after he rapes her and agapes her. He loves her. But it is interesting because it says he reassures her. He, he's tender with her after raping her. Again, the, the picture of this story is so odd. It is not what you expect. But to be fair, that's kind of humans, isn't it? Things are not so cut and dry in, in any scenario, let alone scenarios as dark as this. So he wants to marry her. He loves her. Now Jacob heard that Shechem had defiled Dinah, his daughter. But Jacob's sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob kept silent until they came in. Then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. Hamor was trying to make this marriage deal happen. Now the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it. And they, the men, them, Jacob's sons, were grieved. And they were very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing ought not to be done. So now we've got the parties, the main cast. We've got Jacob. We've got Jacob's sons, which we're going to see is actually pretty specific who it's referring to. Later on, we'll see. And we've got Hamor and Shechem. And then, of course, Dinah, the victim. But Hamor spoke with them, the sons and Jacob, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him in marriage. Intermarry with us, give us your daughters, to, and take our daughters for yourselves. Thus you shall live with us, and the land shall be open before you. Live and trade in it, and acquire property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, If I find favor in your sight, then I will give you whatever you say to me, whatever you ask of me. Ask me whatever amount for a bridal payment and gift. And I will give according as you say to me, but give me the girl in marriage. So it seems like, as odd as it is, Shechem is serious about Dinah. He's willing to pay any price, he says, to marry her. And what's interesting about this and what's important to note, again, this is cultural distance here. One thing, we read this and we're repulsed. We're repulsed by the thought of this poor girl who was just raped is going to have to marry this guy? 
How heinous is that? How awful, how destructive for her. What's interesting is what Shechem is doing is actually in accordance accordance with the, the Old Testament law. Now, the law hasn't come into being yet, right? We know it happens at at Sinai in Exodus. But if you read Exodus, if you read Deuteronomy 22, it actually says that when a man lays with a virgin, and and it's implying rape, um, that he's actually meant to marry her and pay 50 shekels to her father, which is the dowry, which is a very high dowry. It's... It's a, a high, steep price, um, according to their law. And it would be a lot of money in that day. And it says he must marry her and can never divorce her. And again, we, we just look at that from our lens and our worldview, and we're like, this is the most heinous thing I've ever heard. This is so awful that this woman would be put into this situation. What we miss and what we don't understand culturally is, of course, that the woman in this culture is completely and 100% dependent on the man of this culture. They own no property. They own no land. They don't have anything that is in their name. And even worse than that, which seems baffling to us, worse, worse than the rape? Yes, worse than the rape. She is defiled. She is unclean. She is ashamed. Actually, better put, she is shamed by the community. She has no standing. And no one will take her. You understand? She, after the rape, she's unclean. No man is going to marry her anymore. Her hope and chance for livelihood in a family has been wrecked completely through a circumstance that is not any fault of her own. And so God, in his providence, in his kindness, in this culture, makes a provision for the raped woman to be provided for by society. And of course, the answer is this man who has defiled you must restore your honor by marrying you. And then not only that, he can never leave you nor forsake you. He can't divorce you. He must provide for you. He must take care of you. So in our eyes, it looks so terrible. It looks so heinous, but it's actually a provision. This woman who not only would have no standing, no chance of marriage, would be destitute. Her only chance of any way of having a life of providing, of taking care of herself, would be to become a prostitute. Because it's the only chance she has to make money as a defiled person, as, an ashamed, as a shamed person. She has no chance of a, of a standard life, livelihood or a husband that would provide for her. She has no hope except to prostitute herself further, which, of course, I mean, think about that. Think about compounding that on top of the rape. This is actually a provision. And what's interesting is Shechem, out of the blue, offers that provision. So as as awful as we may think that sound, it actually seems like, despite the heinous evil of his original act, 
He's trying to rectify it in some sense. Doesn't make it okay. Doesn't make it a good thing. But there is a sense in which Shechem must actually have some deep feelings for this woman, for Dinah, and wants to offer uh, marriage to her and and pay a, a, a huge sum to be married to her and to restore what he's taken from her to the extent that he can. But Jacob's sons have another idea. See, Jacob's sons, they answered Shechem and his father Hamor, and they answered with deceit. Now, we don't know what the deceit is yet, but the narrator tells us that they are answering deceitfully, so we keep that in our minds. They answered with deceit. And why did they answer with deceit? Why? Because Shechem had defiled Dinah, their sister. So Jacob's son said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us, a reproach upon us. Only on this condition can we consent to you if you will become like us in that every male of you be circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you And we will take your daughters for ourselves and we will live with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us to be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and go. So their their response is a religious one. Listen, we can't join with you. You're not religiously inclined like we are. Unless you become circumcised, the heart of the covenant sign, remember Genesis 17 all the way back there. Unless you commit to that, we can't join with you. The only way you could ever become a part of our people is if you were to be like us religiously. To be circumcised. Fall in line with the covenant. So their words seemed reasonable to Hamor and Shechem. Hamor's son, they, they're considering this. And so the young man, Shechem, did not delay to do the thing because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. Now he was more respected than all the household of his father. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are friendly with us. Therefore let them live in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters in marriage and give our daughters to them. Only on this condition will the men consent to us to live with us and to become one people, that every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock and their property and all their animals be ours? Only let us consent to them and they will live with us. And I actually don't think he means that we're going to steal their stuff. He's saying we'll become one people. As we, as we intermarry their, their inheritance. And remember, Jacob's a wealthy man. We've seen this. Just like his father and his grandfather before him. Their, their inheritance will become our inheritance. What they have will become part of what we have as we, as we become one people, as we intermarry. Shechem's convinced that this is a good plan. And he's delighted with, the, with Dinah. He wants to marry her. So... What's their response? The people, all who went out of the gate of his city, listened to Hamor, 
and to his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. Now it came about on the third day when they were in pain. Remember, they've all just been circumcised, so they're all in deep pain. It's obviously not medical like we might have a circumcision today. This is serious, and they're in deep pain. So while they were in their pain, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, they each took their sword and they came upon the city while the city was unaware. And they killed every male in the city. Now it's important to note, Simeon and Levi are Dinah's full brothers. They're true brothers, right? That's why it probably falls to them. Now Reuben is the oldest. He doesn't take part. Judah's right below them. He doesn't take part, at least in this. But Simeon and Levi do, and that's important for later on in Genesis. But for now, we'll just note it. But Simeon and Levi take this into their own hands. They're going to avenge their sister, their full sister. And it seems to be that part of what's going on is that they're upset that their father is not responding the way they expect him to or want him to. They expected Jacob to be more outraged, to take this into his own hands. And when he doesn't, they do. And of course, in the back of our minds, and in, in what we should be thinking about is, okay, this is Leah's family. Is what's going on here that Jacob just doesn't care about them? Is he less concerned because it's them? Maybe. It's possible. I actually don't think that's the case, but it's certainly possible. The brothers are enraged because Jacob is, just doesn't seem to care. Because this is Leah's daughter. So Simeon and Levi, they killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the edge of the sword. This is interesting. This has been hidden from us thus far. And they took Dinah from Shechem's house and went forth. Jacob's sons, now it's explicit, it's the sons, not just Simeon and Levi. They came upon the slain and they looted the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, and their donkeys, and that which was in the city, and that which was in the field. And they captured and looted all their wealth, and they took all their little ones and their wives, even all that was in their houses. They plundered everything. So Simeon and Levi take vengeance into their own hands, and it's severe. And I think if we're honest and fair, we recognize it's significantly more severe than one rape. They murder everyone who is a male in the town. And then not only steal their stuff, they take their wives and their kids as slaves. So a dark story took a darker turn. That is the path of vengeance. That is the path of escalation. 
One thing I think gets missed in this passage is Jacob is often looked down upon. But he's in an awful situation. And the line I said that was hidden from us, that they took Dinah from Shechem's house, shows how hard the situation is. See, the whole time Hamor and Shechem were wheeling and dealing, making, an, making up a, a deal. Hey, let's intermarry. Let's do all this stuff. Let's, let's become one people. <clears throat> What's hidden from you until the end of the story is that Dinah is still in Shechem's house. They're arguing from a position of strength, aren't they? <laughs> because they still hold her. The mystery is we don't know whether it's against Dinah's will or not. Maybe the reassuring, tender speaking that Shechem did made it that she wanted to be there. That's possible. We have to acknowledge that's possible. But regardless of whether that's the case or not, the brothers clearly assume it's against her will. Against her will. They clearly assume she's been kidnapped. And they assume the only way they're going to get back is to wreak vengeance upon them, right? But think about Jacob. Think about where Jacob's at. Think about what we talked about, about blessing the people of the land. Bringing blessing to the nations. Jacob's in an unenviable position because not only has his daughter been raped, but she's still held hostage in this city. And probably rolling through his mind is the idea of the blessing. Am I, what am I supposed to do in this situation? How can I bless these people and acknowledge also the great wrong that's been done to Dinah? And all at the same time, you know, if you're a Pentateuch reader, if you're an early Jew reading this story, you know. What Shechem offered was in accordance with the law. He was doing what he was supposed to do according to the law of Israel. And yet Simeon and Levi are going to wreak terrible vengeance upon them. And Jacob's got an interesting way of describing his response to his son's actions. He says this, Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me odious, by making me stink, among the inhabitants of the land. Among the Canaanites and the Perizzites, and my men being few in number, they will gather together against me and attack me, and I will be destroyed, I and my household. But their response was, should he treat our sister as a harlot? Now there's a way to interpret this passage in which you see Simeon and Levi as the great heroes, right? They avenge their, their sister. They, they avenge her rape. And they make sure that the, the Shechemites pay. And they pay tenfold. They pay a hundredfold. And they, they speak so piously at the end of this. Should he, should he have treated our sister as a, as a prostitute? And of course the answer everyone's supposed to respond is no, of course not. I don't think that's the way Genesis reads the story. Remember the Old Testament principle. What's the Old Testament principle of what it's typically called talion? That's the, 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 I think it's the Latin for it. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. 
The idea of that principle is equivalent punishment to crime. Right? What you have done, you will be paid back. That's the point of the principle. Now, Jesus, of course, is going to take us way beyond that. But even in the Old Testament, it's equivalent retribution. Does this story sound like equivalent retribution? They took all their wives and children as slaves. They killed every one of the men in the whole town. Men who had nothing to do with Dinah's rape. They were just there. And not only that, they did it deceitfully. And not only that, they did it using deceit about the sign of the covenant. God's covenant with them. That was the mechanism of their deceit. I think it's absolutely asinine to read this with Simeon and Levi as anything other than absolute villains. And especially when you think about the fact that the promise of Jacob, the promises to him are what? Land, seed, and he will be a blessing. The blessing is not being fulfilled here. This is a dark story. And it will come back to Simeon and Levi. We'll see that when we get to the end of the book. But for now, we're just left. We're left in this place. That's all the text we're going to read tonight. And it's never really addressed. When we go to chapter 35, Jacob's ready to return to Bethel. The Lord tells him to go back, and and he's ready to go back. And this story just kind of hangs there in the air. I mean, they just killed an entire tribe of people that lived in the land of Canaan. I also think it's interesting in light of the fact that we know earlier on to Abraham, the Lord even said to him in Genesis, I think it's Genesis 15. He said what? No, no, the Canaanites' judgment is coming, but they have not yet brought their sin to the full measure, is the point of what he's saying, right? He says, you're going to go into slavery in in Egypt for 400 years, but when you return, I'm going to drive out the Canaanites. I'm going to take care of them. Why? Because they haven't yet sinned to the fullness of their measure. Judgment was coming for the Canaanites, but... I don't think this was God's timing. And we actually know when God's timing was, because it's supposed to happen in Joshua, isn't it? That's their judgment. But there's no indication that this was in any way aligned with what God was intending for. That he wanted them to, to met out justice in this case, or at least what they would view as justice. There's a principle here, and I think it's significant. And I wanted to talk about it because it's a New Testament reality that I think Christians don't understand the power of. See, what's going on in the story is a concept that's very, very core, actually, to the Old Testament. But we, like I said, we tend to not think in these terms as a Western culture. And that concept is the concept of defilement. When Dinah is raped, she is defiled. 
And when Jacob's sons murder this entire town and then take all their plunder from all their wealth and take their women and children as slaves, the land is defiled. That's the terminology the Old Testament uses. The Lord will use it also of Israel when they do evil in the land. They are defiling the land. What is the language of defilement? Well, it's clean and unclean. See, things can be clean and unclean. And so when we get to Leviticus and we read it, and it totally seems like, whoa, this is way out there. Like, look at all this stuff that keeps being talked about as clean and unclean. What is going on here? This is totally foreign to us. And, and what about these things that God says are unclean? What does that even mean? Like, like a woman is menstruating and they're unclean? Like, how's that work? And they can't go into the, the holy space. They can't be in the camp. They have to, like, what is all this stuff? Well, see, what happens in Western cultures is we interpret it as guilt and innocence. We interpret it, the word is forensically. We interpret it in terms of judgment. See, we see clean and unclean, and inherently we think clean is unsinful, unclean is sinful. We see it, oh, when you're clean, you are innocent. When you're unclean, you're guilty. That's not the point of defilement. It's about what is clean and what is unclean. And oddly enough, I actually think rape is the best sin to look at to understand defilement. And it makes perfect sense in this story. And it actually makes perfect sense if you've ever heard the story of a woman who's been raped, or, or you, maybe you even know a woman who's been raped. But one of these kind of iconic things that you always hear about after a rape is what? It's the woman goes home and tries to take a shower. She tries to wash the filth off of her. Because why? She feels unclean. This idea that I have been defiled, I have made, I've been made unclean. And that typical reaction to that is I need to go clean myself, literally, physically. I'm going to get in the shower and take soap to my body because I, I just can't wash this off. And that's such a tragic thing because I think it's something we all experience, but we don't recognize always we experience. See, because Jesus and what he accomplishes in the New Testament and what he does in the New Testament is not just deal with guilt and innocence. But as Westerners, we interpret everything through that lens. That's how we look at everything. Either we're guilty or we're innocent. What other dimensions are there? Well, there's more to what God does than just forgiveness. That's one dimension among, many's, among many of what Jesus accomplished. And one thing we often don't think about is that not only does God deal with the sins we commit, which is true, by forgiving us, he actually deals with the sins that are committed against us 
just defilement. Okay, let me quote a verse that you all probably know from 1 John. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and purify you from all unrighteousness. See, we get the forgiveness part. We don't get the cleansing part. Because cleansing is the antidote to defilement. And we read, if you confess your sins, we only think about sins that we've committed. But here's the thing. You can actually confess sins that have been committed against you. Confession is about speaking them out. Sins that have been committed against you can be spoken out to the Lord, and He is what? Faithful and just to cleanse you from their unrighteousness. There is no earthly force pure enough to cleanse the human soul. And that's one of the big points of the trauma of rape. Survivors of rape often feel they can never get clean. Because there's no amount of soap and water that's going to clean your soul. Jesus That doesn't mean there aren't still going to be traumatic effects. That doesn't mean you're not still going to hold the weight of the sin that has been committed against you. But Jesus actually can cleanse your soul from the effects of defilement. And that's why when you read the Old Testament, and it talks about clean and unclean, God always gives a way to be cleansed. It's never, hey, you're unclean. Get out of the camp of Israel. You're never coming back. You're done. There's no hope. You're out. No, there's always a ritual. Do this. Wait seven days. Do this. And you're made clean. It's the exact story of Isaiah 6 which is a great story and has so many awesome points to talk about, but one of them is defilement. When Isaiah shows up in Isaiah 6 in the throne room, in the temple, he sees God sitting on the throne. Do you remember what he says? See, most people, they they recognize Isaiah's having this wonderful vision, this vision of God on the throne, of, of God the king. They don't recognize what's going on in Isaiah. Because Isaiah says something very specific. He says, I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. What Isaiah thinks is that him, defiled him, He's going to die in the presence of the pure God. (laughs) This God who is so holy, so righteous, so pure, and he's so defiled. How can he possibly be in the throne room without his life being snuffed out? 
What's God's response? What does he do for Isaiah? He takes a coal from the altar and he touches it to Isaiah's lips to purify him. One of the things you notice about all the Old Testament laws on cleanliness and uncleanliness, defilement, is this. Whenever something defiled touches something else, it becomes defiled too. Right? A a corpse, for example. That's a defiled thing. It's unclean. And if a person touches that corpse, guess what? You're now unclean. And if you go touch someone else, now they're unclean. And it keeps going and going. If If an unclean thing touches another thing, that thing becomes unclean. What's the power of who God is? He can't be defiled. In fact, not only can he not be defiled, but he goes into places that there is defilement and he cleanses them. That's that Isaiah vision, that coal from the altar that's placed on Isaiah's lip. Uh, What's the point of that? That's talking about Jesus. It's a coal from the altar of sacrifice cleansing Isaiah. And we forget, we forget how often we need cleansing. Because like Isaiah, we are of unclean lips and we live among a people of unclean lips in ways that the ancient world probably could not even fathom. And I can tell you, both from my own personal sin and from sins that have been committed against me, that the prayer of cleansing is something that actually works. It's something that you can pray and say, cleanse me, purify me, Purify my mind from the thought I had. Purify my mind from what I saw. I didn't even mean to see it. But I felt defiled by it. It just came up. Or it just, it was a billboard or whatever. I didn't even mean to. And somehow I feel defiled. The cleansing prayer works. The Lord responds to the cleansing prayer. But the problem is, all too often we forget that we are even defiled. (laughs) Because it's not a category we think of. It's not a category we think in. We think about sin in terms of innocence and guilt. We think, Lord, forgive us. We did something wrong. But all too often we forget, Lord, take that away from me. Cleanse me. I, I don't want it to reside in me. Or even sometimes when I, I sin against Monique or sin against my kids, I say to them, I say to the Lord, Lord, cleanse them. Cleanse them from the effects of what I did. Don't let it hang about them. Don't let it defile them. See, Jacob here, he feels defiled too. Because of what his sons did. You can hear it in the language. He doesn't use the word defiled. He says what? You've made me stink. That's such a sensory word. Why? 
What do we think of when we think of unclean? We think of nasty smelling things. Corpses and, and, you know, awful and, you know, bodily waste and all these things. That's the things that make you unclean. They're smelly. They're stinky. They're nasty. That's what Jacob's saying. You've made me reek among the inhabitants. You've defiled me in the, pre- in the presence of these people. We may not see the answer in this passage in Genesis, but the beauty of being where we are in history is that we did find the answer in Jesus. There is a way to be cleansed. And Jesus paid that price. And I listened to the songs Aaron sang tonight as I was getting ready to preach this sermon. And I knew the content of this sermon. And I listened to the words Aaron was singing about cleansing. His cleansing blood plunged me beneath the flood of his cleansing blood. We often just interpret that as forgiveness. Lord, forgive me. It's not what it's saying. It's saying, clean me. Make me clean. I hope the next time you hear those words being used, you see the weight of them, the value of them, that they offer something that all too often we don't even consider. Something else that that Christ's death and resurrection paid for that's valuable and worthwhile. And I hope this next week, and and I hope even tonight, you'll consider the things you feel you've been defiled by. Maybe, you, maybe it's something from 20 years ago, I don't know, and you've just never felt right. I hope you'll pray a cleansing prayer tonight. Lord, cleanse me, purify me. Remove defilement from me. And I know he'll answer that prayer. Aaron, before we move on, I'm gonna give it over to Tyler to pray, but I was just hoping we could sing Actually, both of the last two songs, both of them have that language, the cleansing. Uh, would you just play one of those songs one more time and let us, let us sing it? About the cleansing power of Jesus. Jesus is the God who wants us to be clean before him. Why is it important to be clean? Well, just like Isaiah, oftentimes when we're unclean, we feel like we can't enter his presence. There is joy in entering into the Lord's presence clean, undefiled, whole. And thankfully, even if tonight you're sitting here and you are defiled, like I told you before, he's undefilable. He will enter into the dirtiest, messiest, most depraved, defiling situations that humans can concoct. And untouched and unscathed and undefiled, he himself will bring cleansing to it because it's what he loves to do. It's who he is. In fact, We can look at the mission of Jesus through that lens 
And it's a good lens to look at it through. God had a mission to send Jesus on to bring cleansing to the world, a world that was defiled. And what do we think? What do we think is going to happen to Jesus? He shows up and he's human now. He's going to be defiled by every person that touches him. What do you think is the power of the leper story? And Jesus touching them. Why does that matter? What, what's the power behind it? The power that Jesus is not defiled by their leprosy. He cleanses them. There's nothing anyone can do to you that Jesus can't cleanse. Jesus comes here and he becomes a man and we think God just became a man and he's going to be totally unclean. The evil and the stain of the world is going to destroy him. It's going to contaminate him. It's going to infest every part of his being. But he's undefilable. And everywhere he steps is cleansed. And every person he touched is healed. Because that's who he is. He's the coal from the altar. Come down to earth to cleanse our lips. And then the craziest thing of all, we watch his ministry. We watch him take all these steps and, and live out all these moments. And he's totally undefiled, untouched. Nothing can touch him. In his pureness, in his holiness, in perfect purity. And then what's he do? He takes every bit of defilement that humans have ever faced. And he becomes that defilement that Corinthians talks about. Him who knew no sin became sin. He's on that cross carrying the weight of every defiling thing that has ever happened. And it's not just so that he can forgive us. And of course, that's huge. That's powerful. That's significant. It's an important consequential dimension of the atonement, of what he accomplished in it. But he doesn't stop there. He becomes defilement itself. He becomes a horror, the Old Testament says. An abomination, a, a, a cursed man hanging on the tree. So that all the defilement, all the smell, all the rot that is in our souls, that has been wrought upon us, that every person could ever do to another person, that he might absorb all of that pay for it. So not only forgiveness is found, but that cleansing is found. Think about Zechariah. Think about Revelation. White robes. We can be taking off the filthy garments The rotten clothes and be put in what? Perfectly, beautifully, pure white, untouched, unscathed, clean. 
That's the point of that language. Jesus did that. Let's sing this song one more time. And Tyler, will you lead us in prayer? Open up the skies of mercy Rain down the cleansing flood Healing waters rise around us And hear our cries, Lord let them rise, and it's your kindness, Lord, that leads us to repentance. Your favor, Lord, is our desire, and it's your beauty, Lord, that makes us stand in silence. Your love, your love. Better than life. Lord, we are so thankful for all that you do for us, and we um, we just love you so much, Lord. And I just pray that you would help us remember the words that were spoken tonight, this week. Um, just help us focus on, on not just seeking uh, forgiveness, but seeking that cleanliness of, that only we can get from your spirit. Especially in a world today where we just hear so many things and see so many things. And things are happening to people around us and just all these dark, evil things that defile us, Lord. I pray that you would uh, just touch our spirits and touch our hearts to cleanse us from those things and to um, just be able to to live a life of righteousness in you. Um, Lord, be with us this week and help us to remember each other in prayer this week and help us to remember to pray uh for each other to not be defiled by the things that are around us. Um, and also to pray for each other to receive that cleansing love from you. We thank you, Lord, so much for all these things. Thank you for our time tonight where we can come together and, and hear these words from you. Um, just let them rest in our hearts this week and, and be on our minds. Pray that you would bless us tonight and bless us this week. We love you, Lord. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Amen.